Um, the scripture we're reading today is Luke 1, 39 through 56. So if you have a Bible, you can turn to it. If you don't, that's okay. Mary visits Elizabeth. A few days later, Mary hurried to the hill country of Judea, to the town where Zechariah lived. She entered the house and greeted Elizabeth. At the sound of Mary's greeting, Elizabeth's child leaped within her, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Elizabeth gave a glad cry and exclaimed to Mary, God has blessed you above all women, and your child is blessed. Why am I so honored that the mother of my Lord should visit me? When I heard your greeting, the baby in my womb jumped for joy. You are blessed because you believed that the Lord would do what he said. Mary responded, Oh, how my soul praises the Lord, how my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he took notice of his lowly servant girl, and from now on all generations will call me blessed. For the Mighty One is holy, and he has done great things for me. He, has, he shows mercy from generation to generation to all who fear him. His mighty arm has done tremendous things. He has scattered the proud and haughty ones. He has brought down princes from their thrones and exalted the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away with empty hands. He has helped his servant Israel and remembered to be merciful. For he has made this promise to our ancestors, to Abraham and his children forever. Mary stayed with Elizabeth about three months and then went back to her own home. This is the word of God. Morning, Whitefields. Good to be with you again, as usual. We're, um, today's the fourth Sunday of Advent, so let's uh, bow our heads as we get into the word of God. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love for us. Lord, we thank you that it is unchanging, that it is steadfast. Lord, that you love us with an everlasting love. Lord, thank you that it is, uh, it is like a stable rock in our lives that we can cling to, your love, Lord. Lord, we ask this morning as we open your word, Lord, that you would speak to us. We thank you for the opportunity to gather in your name, to worship you, and also, Lord, we come to seek your face. We come to seek a living word from you. Lord, we ask that you would speak to us and give us hearts to hear what you would speak to us this morning. Lord, help us to be not just hearers of the word, help us to be doers. And we pray that these words that you speak, Lord, that they would be life-giving to us and to our congregation. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So um, we are doing an Advent series here at Whitefields. You know, the, the English word Advent comes from the Latin word Adventus, which means coming. And so Advent is a time in which we focus on the coming of Christ. And as we look back to the first Christmas, the first coming of Jesus 2,000 years ago, we also look forward to the second coming of Christ at some point yet to come, at some point in the future. So for the season of Advent, what we've been doing here at Whitefields is a special teaching series called A New Day Dawning in which we're studying about the coming of Christ and the kingdom of God. And, um, you know, this is our fourth week in it. This is our final Sunday in this series. And what we've seen is that the coming of Christ, both his first coming and his second coming, 
his coming is all about the coming of the kingdom of God. And the metaphor that the Bible uses over and over to describe the coming of the kingdom of God is the metaphor of dawn, of a new day dawning. You know, dawn is that time when after the darkest period of the night, the light begins to appear. And, you know, the shift from day or from night into day, it doesn't happen instantaneously. It doesn't happen in a moment. It happens gradually. And during dawn, both light and darkness are present at the same time. You know, the darkness has been broken by the light. The power, the heaviness of the darkness has been broken by the light. But yet, at the same time, it's not yet fully day. It's this in-between time, this time when the darkness is waning and the light is coming. And the night ends at the moment when the sun rises on the horizon. And when that happens, it dispels all the darkness. And, and fitting in with this metaphor, Jesus is called, in, in the book of Revelation, he's called the bright and morning star. His coming marks the beginning of the dawn. He is the last sign of the dawn. So when we look back at the first coming of Christ, the first Christmas, we, we are remembering that as Jesus came, as the light of the world, the dawn began. And what we eagerly long for, what we expectantly wait for, is the, the rising of the sun in all of its fullness and all of its power, completely dispelling all of the darkness and all of the effects of the darkness. That's the hope that we have. And that really describes perfectly where we're at spiritually in the history of the world. Right? Jesus, the light of the world, has come. He brings the kingdom of God. He establishes the kingdom of God. He provides forgiveness of sins. He provides grace and reconciliation with God through his blood shed for you. But we still long for that time. There's still something we wait for expectantly, right? We long for that time when he will come again, bringing the kingdom of God in fullness, making all things new, wiping away every tear, making death and sickness and all of the effects of sin, the effects of darkness, the curse, making those things, things of the past that are no longer. You know, that is really the hope of the Messiah. That's the hope that the Jewish people always had for the Messiah. It was rooted in the Old Testament. And as Christians, that's our hope as well. It's the hope of the kingdom of God. It's the hope of a new day in which sin and all of its effects are things of the past, in which life will flourish as it was originally intended to before sin entered this world and brought everything into what the Bible calls bondage to corruption. You know, we all know the Christmas carol, Joy to the World, right? But have, have you ever really thought about what it says? It's actually a very profound uh, little song. The third verse I find to be the most profound. It really touches on this topic of what we're talking about, about a new day dawning and the kingdom of God coming. The third uh, verse of, of the song, Joy to the World, says this. No more let sin and sorrow grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. You know, the good news of the gospel is that with the coming of Jesus, a new day has begun to dawn. And it's only a matter of time before the sun rises and the new day is fully here. And really, that's what Advent is really about. It's a season of patient waiting, a season of soul searching, and a season of hopeful expectation. Advent is a time when we're waiting and getting ready for Christmas. And as we do that, we remember that ultimately... What we are waiting for, what we are preparing for, what we're longing for 
is the appearing of the kingdom of God. You know, my son Nate is five years old, and he's really excited about Christmas. You know, I don't actually get that excited about Christmas, but uh, I do get excited when I see how excited my son is about Christmas, and my daughter too, you know. You know, like many of you, we have a, a Christmas tree in our living room, and, and over the past few weeks there have been a growing number of presents under this tree. And, you know, my son, five years old, he's having a really hard time waiting for Christmas. He's been counting down the days until Christmas for a couple weeks now. And, uh, you know, my daughter is, she's going to be three next month, so she's still two, but but she's not as good at counting. So she just comes up to me every day and asks me, is today Christmas? And not yet, Angel, you know, it will be soon, but not yet. So the other day, Nate comes up to me and he tells me, Dad, I have an idea. What we're going to do is we're going to put on some Christmas music and we're going to pretend it's Christmas and then we can open all the presents, Okay. And, uh, and I said, no, nah, Nate, we gotta, we gotta wait until Christmas. It's almost here. It'll be here soon. And he says, but how soon? I said, well, just a few more days, son. Just a few more days. Just be patient. Just hang on. Well, then I got busy doing something. And, uh, and after a while, I realized I haven't seen Nate in uh, quite a while. So I started looking around the house for him. And uh, I ended up finding him in his room. And he's curled up on his bed, you know, looking sad. And I said, you know, what's wrong, buddy? And he tells me, Dad, it's just so hard to wait for Christmas, you know? And, and let me tell you what, that is the spirit of Advent. That's it right there. That exemplifies what Advent's all about. Because in Christ, we've been redeemed. We've been given the gift of eternal life. We've been given citizenship in the kingdom of God. And God's word says that in Christ, we have been given every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. But yet we long for that day when our redemption will be complete. When we will experience those gifts, those blessings we've been given in Christ, not only in part as we do now, but in fullness. And sometimes, you know, we look around the world and we feel like Nate did. We feel like just curling up and saying, it's really hard to wait for that day to come. Lord, when will your kingdom come? You know, in days that we live in like today where, where we, we see the news and we see in our own country children being murdered in their schools, we see people suffering and dying from diseases and sicknesses, and we, we say, Lord, uh, how much longer? Lord, it's, it's getting hard to wait for that day to come. I just want it so much to already be here. I want those things to be things of the past. I want your kingdom to come, Lord. And the response we get back from our Heavenly Father is the same response that I gave to my son, which is just a few more days. Just hold on a little bit longer. It's coming soon. And you know, you might ask, we naturally want to ask, why do we have to keep waiting? Lord, why can't your kingdom come now? What are we waiting for? Well, here's why we have to wait. Because God so loved the world. That's why we're waiting. Because God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever would believe in him would have eternal life. Would not perish, but have eternal life, right? The reason we wait is because of the love of God. Because as as it says in 1 Timothy, God our Savior desires all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Because this dawn that we live in right now It is the day of salvation. 
It's a window of time when Jesus has opened up the way to the Father. When people can come freely to the Father by the blood of Jesus and receive the grace of God, have their sins forgiven. Where they can receive the righteousness of Christ. But that door will not be open forever because when Jesus does come again, when the sun does rise on this new day that's already dawning, the door of salvation will be closed. So why do we have to wait for the coming of Christ and the fullness of the kingdom? Because the love of God, right? The God who desires all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. He's waiting. He wants to bring more people into his kingdom. And let me tell you what, I am glad that he waited for me. If you know him, if you're part of his kingdom, I'm sure that you're glad that he waited for you. And there are more people that he desires to bring into his kingdom. And we don't know when that day will come. We're all like my two-year-old daughter, you know. We just have to ask him every day. Is today the day? You know, is today Christmas? Is today the day of your coming? And the answer, you know, like my daughter, you know. No, not yet, angel. It'll be here soon. You know, next day, is today the day? No, not yet. It'll be here soon. But you know what? One day, very soon, my daughter's going to wake up. She's going to come into my room in the morning and ask me, Daddy, is today the day? And I'm going to say, yes, angel, today's the day. And that's what we look forward to. That's what we long for. So in following what we've been doing for Advent, we've been focusing on the various aspects of the coming of Christ and the kingdom of God, which are represented by the uh, candles on the Advent wreath. Today, we lit the fourth candle on the wreath, which is known as the angel candle or the candle of love. So today we're going to be talking about the love of God, which is a huge topic, right? But we're going to break it down in this way. The love of God is a love that satisfies, number one. Number two, it is a love that identifies. And number three, it is a love that transforms. So I'll say that again. The love of God is number one, love that satisfies. Number two, love that identifies. And number three, love that transforms. Let's look at it. The love of God is love that satisfies. The psalm writer says this, Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Now think about this. How can the love of God be something that satisfies? That was actually something we sang this morning, right? That the love of God satisfies our soul. How is it that the love of God is something that satisfies? Well, here's why. Because the love of God is not sentimentalism. It's not trite platitudes that you read on a Hallmark card. The love of God is something manifest. The love of God is something tangible. The reason the love of God is something that satisfies is because the love of God is love that redeems us. The author, Ernest Becker, he once said something very profound and very biblical. He said that in all people, there is this innate desire for love. And that really, this desire for love that all people have, it is nothing less than a desire for redemption. Now that's profound, and I think that's so true. Have you ever thought about that? That all people desire to be loved. And that's just such a normal, natural part of life that we take that for granted, right? Where we say, well, of course everybody wants to be loved. That's part of who we are. But... Have you ever thought about why that is? Why is that part of who we are? Why is that a need that we have? Why is that an essential need that we have? You know, really, the need to be loved is the strongest emotional need that we have. Just like we have physical needs for food and water, in order to survive just as much, we need love. 
You know, I've had some experience working with orphans and orphanages in, in Hungary and Romania and Ukraine. And one of the biggest changes that has happened in the way that orphanages function in the last 100 years is because of the realization of how essential, what an essential need it is that babies have, that small children have for love and affection, and how much that actually affects their development. You know, babies who do not receive love and affection, even at the earliest stages of of their development, they experience major developmental problems. You know, love is something that we need. We have an emotional need for it. It's not just something that's nice to have as an extra bonus, a plus. It's something we need on the same level like water and food. We have this innate desire to be loved, a need to be loved. And really, it's an amazing thing how much uh, difference it makes in someone's life if they do have a sense that they are loved. You know, people who know that they're loved, they're more confident. They, they're more resilient. People can withstand pain, suffering, trials, if they know that they're loved. You know, I know myself, I've told my wife on a number of occasions, that when I feel that she loves me, that I feel like the king of the world. I could be like the poorest guy in some slum somewhere, but I would feel like the king of the world if I know that she loves me. But think about this. Why is it that we are built this way? But the Bible actually gives us the answer to that question. The reason we have an innate need for love, why all people have this desire for love, is because we were created to be in a relationship with God. And you know, because of sin, that relationship was severed, but we never lost that need for love, that desire to be loved. And so because we were created to be in relationship with God, but that relationship was severed because of sin, we are left with this inner sense of emptiness. That we all live with, right? And we're trying to fill that sense of emptiness, but we don't always know how. My two-year-old daughter, uh, the other day, she walks up to me. I'm in the kitchen. She just walks up to me and starts crying. And I say, well, well, what's wrong? And she says, I want something. And I say, well, all right. What do you want? She says, I don't know. And she starts crying. (laughs) I don't know what I want. I just want something. And I said, do you want some food? Are you hungry? I don't know, just give me something now. I want something. And she just starts crying, you know. I think there's a lot of people in the world who are at that place, right? They want something. They're not really sure what it is. They can't express it. They can't pinpoint it, but they know they want something. And, And what the Bible would say is what you really long for, what you long for to satisfy your soul is the love of God. That's the only love that can truly satisfy your soul because it is the love that you were made to know. That's why Ernest Becker is absolutely right in saying that the desire that all people have for love is ultimately nothing less than the desire for redemption. Many people are like, you know, my daughter. They, they know they want something, they long for something, but they can't quite figure out what it is. So what people do, you know, is they try to fill that sense of inner emptiness with all sorts of things that they try to satisfy their soul with. The love of another person, affection, you know, other things, uh, hobbies, activities, jobs, feelings of success. But in the end, none of those things will satisfy because ultimately the desire for love that all of us have is nothing less than a desire for redemption. And what is redemption? 
Well, redemption, as we've seen over the last few weeks, it is redemption from the curse of sin, and it is the restoration of the relationship with God that we were created for. It's the kingdom of God. Now think about this story. We, you know, we, up until we started this series in December, we were studying through the book of Genesis. And one of the last stories we studied before we took a break in Genesis was the story of Jacob. So I want to think about the story of Jacob, but think about it from a, a little bit different perspective today. Now Jacob, right, he's the grandson of Abraham, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he, you know, he got in a little bit of a fight with his brother, so he runs away. He ends up meeting this girl, right? He falls in love with her. Her name's Rachel. The Bible tells us that she was extremely beautiful, very, very desirable. And as soon as Jacob meets her, he's completely smitten with her. And he's so smitten with her that he says, I will do literally anything to be with that woman. I must have her. I will do anything to get that woman and make her my wife. So, you know, Rachel's dad, Laban, he wasn't much of a straight shooter. He's not the kind of guy that you want to lend your car to. You know what I mean? And he, he sees this as a great opportunity to take advantage of Jacob. So he says, all right, Jacob, you want my daughter? Well, make me an offer. Well, in that day, if you wanted to marry a girl, you had to pay what's called a bride price, which means this is a chunk of money that you give to the family of the bride you know, to show that you're really serious about this, to show that you're capable of taking care of her, that you've got what it takes. Well, Jacob's broke. He doesn't have any money. So he says, you know what? Here, I'll make you a deal. I don't have any money, but I will work for you for, for no wages except your daughter. I'll work for you for seven years. I will become your slave if at the end of the seven years you give me your daughter. Laban says, you got a deal, you know, seven years of free labor. So Jacob becomes Laban's slave. He works for him for seven years with no pay. At the end of seven years, he says to Laban, give me my wife that I may lay with her. He's not beating around the bush. He doesn't want to play board games with her. He says, this is what I want to do. This is what I've been waiting for, for seven years. Now my time's done. This is the thing that I've wanted. This is the thing that I need. Laban says, sure, man, of course. So they have the wedding, the wedding night when the marriage is consummated. Jacob finally gets this thing that he has longed for, for years and years. He finally gets the thing which he always wanted, to be with Rachel as his wife. But what happens when he wakes up in the morning? It wasn't what he expected, was it? He wakes up and he turns over and he gets a shocking realization. It wasn't Rachel he had gone to bed with, but it was Leah. Now, Leah was Rachel's older sister, and the Bible makes it clear in no uncertain terms that she was not beautiful and attractive. She was not desirable. And Laban's dad, you know, he had switched out the girls on Jacob and tricked Jacob into marrying Leah, his ugly older daughter. She was, you know, Jacob, and, he, and here's what I want to say. Jacob thought he was going to bed with Rachel, but he woke up with Leah. Now, we studied that story a few weeks ago, but think about it from this perspective. Jacob going to bed with Rachel and waking up with Leah is symbolic. It's a perfect analogy of the disillusionment that we experience, the disappointment that we inevitably experience when we seek fulfillment in the wrong things. We always think that we're going to bed with Rachel. We think, this is it. This is what I've been waiting for and longing for my entire life. But in the morning when we wake up, we realize that it was actually Leah. 
What we truly desire is the love of God. The innate desire for love we have is nothing less than the desire for redemption. The love of God is the only thing that can truly satisfy because the love of God alone is love that redeems. It's love that we were created to know. But anytime we seek fulfillment in anything else, you think, this is it. This will fulfill me. This will fulfill the deepest longings and my sense of emptiness that I live with. But in the morning when you wake up, in the light of day, you're always waking up with Leah. C.S. Lewis said this in his book, Mere Christianity. He said this, Most people, if they really learn to look into their own hearts, would know that what they, that, that they do want and want acutely something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promise. The longings which arise in us when we first fall in love, or first think of some foreign country, or first take up some subject that excites us, are longings which no marriage, no travel, no learning can really satisfy. I am not speaking now of what would ordinarily be called unsuccessful marriages, or holidays, or learned careers. I am speaking of the best ones possible. There, is, there was something we grasped at in the first moment of longing which fades away in the reality. I think everyone knows what I mean. The wife may be a good wife and the hotels and scenery may have been excellent and it may have been a very interesting job, but something has evaded us. In the morning, it's always Leah. But that's something we need to learn. That's something that we need to get inside our heads. You think you're marrying Rachel, but in the morning it's always Leah. Because what that means is that the love that you really want and long for, the love that we all truly desire deep down, cannot be found in another person. It can't be found in any pursuit. It can only be found in a relationship with Jesus Christ. You know, your desire for love that you have is nothing less than a desire for redemption. It is a desire for the kingdom of God. And as long as you seek to satisfy and fulfill that sense of emptiness with things of this world, you will be Jacob, thinking you're going to bed with Rachel and waking up with Leah, perpetually disappointed and frustrated. Only the love of God can satisfy the deepest longing of your soul because the love of God is love that you were created to know. The love of God is love that redeems. It is the only kind of love that is perfect and complete. It is love that is unchanging and unfailing. It is the only love that's strong enough to satisfy your soul both now and in eternity. So number two, let's talk about this. The love of God is love that identifies. You know, one of the reasons people desire to be loved is because when somebody loves you, that gives you an identity. You know, not only do people have this desire to be loved, but people have a desire to have an identity. You know, one of the results of sin, as I mentioned, is this inner sense of emptiness, but another result of sin is a nagging feeling of insignificance. You know, we live in a big world now. There's over 7 billion people, and I don't even know half their names. You know what I mean? You wonder, 7 billion people, and I'm just one of them. And I know maybe a couple hundred people, maybe a couple thousand people at best. And that's, uh, that sounds like a lot at first. But then you think, I know a couple thousand people. In a state where there's a couple million people, in a country where there's 
a couple hundred million people in a world where there's a couple billion people and you realize that you have to ask the question, inevitably we do, in the grand scheme of things, how do I know that I am significant? How do I know that my life matters? And some people are literally terrified by the prospect of living a life that is insignificant. You know, some people are driven, but the reason that they're driven is because they fear. They have this fear of insignificance, of this nagging sense of what if my life doesn't matter in the big picture of things. And so people are always searching for identity, something that will give them significance and value, something that will make them stand out from the crowd of seven billion people. And love is one of those things that gives you an identity. If somebody loves you, that gives you an identity. That means that you are important to that person. It gives you a title in that person's life. You are girlfriend, you are boyfriend, husband, wife, uh, mom, dad, grandma, grandpa. You get a title, you have significance, you have a role in their life. That gives you an identity. But the thing is that the love of people... It's not stable, right? It changes. It takes different shape. It morphs over time. And sometimes it fades. But on the other hand, God's love is stable. It's unchanging. It's steadfast. It's unconditional. It's not dependent on your performance. There are other things that can give you an identity. You know, your job, things that you excel at, your physical appearance. But of course, we know that those things aren't stable either, right? Beauty fades. Abilities fade with time. Uh, Other people come along who excel more than you do. They're better than you at the things that you're good at. The one thing that will give you an identity that will not change and never fade away is the love of God. John says this in 1 John. He says, See what kind of love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God. That is a love that gives you an identity. An identity that's never going to change. If you've put your faith in Jesus Christ for your salvation, then you have been welcomed in to God's family. You have been adopted into his family as his child. And that is your new identity. Beloved child of the king. Heir of the kingdom of God. You know, Paul the Apostle says an interesting thing in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He says, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. He's saying this, From now on, when I look at people, I don't want to see them for who they are outwardly. From now on, when I look at people, I want to see them for who they are on the inside. I want to see people the way that God sees them. And that means if I look at somebody, I don't want to see them for for how much money they have or what kind of house they live in or what kind of car they drive. I want to see who that person is before God. Are they a child of God? Are they a person who is still estranged from God? And if they are a person who is a child of God, I want to see them for the new creation that they are in Christ. I don't want to just see them as the person that they were, the person that they have been. I want to see them for the person that God is making them. And that's really a powerful practice for all of us to get in the habit of. Determining that we will not judge people according to the flesh. We will determine to see them the way that God sees them. And it's also, I think, important for us to do that with ourselves. 
to identify ourselves as who we are in Christ, who we are in God's eyes. Because that must become your primary identity. If that is your primary identity, if that's your sense of who you are, that you have value and worth because of who you are in God's eyes, that is solid. That is a secure identity. It's an extremely freeing thing, too. When you get that solid, secure identity in who you are in Christ, that frees you up. Because then, all the other things in your life are just things in your life. They're relationships in your life, but they're not the thing. You know, then the, re- the relationships you have, the things that you do, they don't have to be the thing that gives meaning and purpose to your life. They're just, you're free from that. You're just able to do those things for the value that's in them. And that takes so much pressure off, let me tell you. Because if the main thing that gives you your identity is that you're successful at what you do, well then what happens if you fail? What happens if you're no longer successful? If your identity is wrapped up in a person who loves you, what happens if that person stops loving you? But if your identity is solid and secure in the love of God, then those other things in your life, your relationships, your activities, they can just be things that you do, things that you enjoy, but not the sum total of who you are. You know, this is a lesson that I I remember learning myself when I uh, first became a pastor when I was in Hungary. And, um, you know, Rosemary and I had gotten married, and we moved to Eger to start a church up there, you know. And and really, up until that point, I had been living in Hungary, uh, serving as a missionary for three years, and uh, everything I had done as a missionary had had been quite successful. I had been organizing these camps that were a big success. I was ministering in a refugee camp and seeing a lot of people turn to Jesus, a lot of Muslim people even. Uh, I was preaching on Monday nights in the church where we served, and we were having just surprisingly large turnouts. Um, And then we moved to Eger, and things were small. We had a group of 20 people that we had, you know, started there, and we were going up on Wednesday nights. So we moved there to start a church, and our group diminished to 10 people. So, you know, it was like uh, things were small, things were slow, and sometimes there were difficulties. And my entire thought life began to just revolve around this church. When is it going to go better? When is it going to, how are we going to reach people? What do I got to do? How am I going to deal with that problem? My entire thought life was all about this. And at one point in my first year there in Eger, I developed eczema. Now we have this, uh, this friend of ours who's a dermatologist in Hungary, and he tried to help me. You know, he tried to help dietary stuff with creams and everything. But he said, you know, eczema is hard to fix because it could be caused by so many different things. And one of the main things is stress. Well, for me, I was totally stressed out. And my stress was coming out on my skin. And the reason I was just stressed out was because my whole identity was caught up in what I did, not in who I was in Christ. You know, I had been finding my identity in being a missionary and being a pastor and being a church planter. But when that wasn't going well, well, then what? Then I'm all stressed out. What am I going to write home in a newsletter? What are people going to think of me because this is who I am? And one day my wife just spoke right into the heart of the matter and said something which was absolutely freeing, absolutely revolutionary for me. And she said this. She said, you know, Nick, this job that you do, this is just what you do. This is not who you are. This is what you do. And you cannot let what you do define who you are. 
And really, that was the beginning of a major uh, change in my attitude towards ministry and my attitudes towards everything that I did, really. It was a truth that set me free. It took the pressure off because my identity in Christ was secure and solid. It wouldn't change based on my performance. And you know what happened is I actually began to enjoy what I was doing for the value of what I was doing. I really, hey, I'm, I get to preach the gospel. I get to speak to people about Jesus. I, I actually began to enjoy that. And you know what? I was still working hard, but the reason I was working hard was different. I was free to actually be driven by the proper motivations, not by fear of failure or fear of insignificance. You know, I I still worked hard at what I did, but the reason why I worked hard had changed. And I I really had a lot more joy in what I did. And and when things were successful and there were breakthroughs, which actually it, it is almost like right after I had this realization, things did start to go better. I, I refuse to let those things define me either. I don't want to be defined by, by what I do. I want to be defined by who I am in Christ. You know, the love of God is love that gives a solid, secure identity. And if your identity is secure in the love of God, then all the other areas of your life will fall into their proper place. Your motivations for doing the things that you do will become healthy motivations because you're no longer striving to prove your significance and value through those things. Thirdly, the love of God is love that transforms. You know, think about what happens when you find that true, deep, lasting satisfaction in the love of God and you find a solid, secure identity in the love of God. You know what happens is that transforms your life. It transforms the way that you live. God's love changes who you are from the inside out. It's not just a reformation of your behavior. It's a transformation that begins at the very core of who you are and then radiates out into your actions. You know, I'm sure all of you are on the internet and you look at social networks. One thing I've noticed over the past week since this terrible shooting happened last week is that everybody's chiming in with their opinion of what we need to do to fix this society that we live in, right? And of course, there are people who, who want more gun control. But on the other side, what I've also seen is people who say, we need to teach morality. We need to get prayer back in schools. And while I don't have a problem with getting prayer back in school, what I do think is that what we really need is not a reformation of our morality. What we really need is a transformation of our hearts. You know why? Because everything starts in here. Everything. And it just radiates out. What we need is a transformed heart, and that will transform our actions. Not just reform them by us telling ourselves to do the right thing and to be more moral. What we need is a transformation of who we are from the inside out. And that can only be found in Jesus Christ. John talks a lot about the love of God in First John. He says this, The reason we love is because God first loved us. The love of God transforms our hearts. And as it transforms our hearts, it transforms the very essence of who we are and how we live. The love of God transforms us into what? It transforms us, number one, into disciples of Jesus. The reason we follow Jesus is because we've come to know the love of God through Jesus. 
Number two, the love of God transforms us into servants of God. Paul the Apostle said this, the love of God, the love of Christ constrains us. Other translations say it compels us. Others say it controls us. Because we've concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but live for him who for their sake died and was raised. He's saying that when you come to know the love of God, you cannot help but be compelled, constrained by it, to no longer live for yourself, but to live unto God, to lay down your life on the altar for him who laid down his life on the cross for you. And thirdly, the love of God transforms us into what? Into worshipers of God. You remember what we started with this morning? Kenna read a scripture it was the song of Mary. It's known as the Magnificat because that was the song that Mary sang when she was pregnant with Jesus and it's a song of magnifying the Lord. And here's the background of that story. Mary realized a most remarkable thing about God. That God was in that moment, right? God was about to change the course of human history. This baby was going to come into the world and change everything. The most important three decades in all of time were about to begin when that baby was born. And where is God? God is occupying himself with two obscure, humble women. One old and barren, Elizabeth, and the other one, a teenage girl, Mary. And Mary is so moved by this vision of God that he is the lover of the lowly, that she breaks out in a song of worship. When you really get a glimpse of the love of God towards you, the love that you were created to know, it transforms you. It transforms you into a disciple of Christ, into a servant of God, and into a worshiper of God. And so we ask the question, how do we get a glimpse of the love of God for us? How do you get a glimpse of the love of God for you? Well, here's how. You look to that stable in which Jesus was born. You look to the manger in which the Son of God, who became the Son of Man, was placed. You look to Bethlehem and you see that God so loved you that he left the glory of heaven and came to the dirt roads of a place like Bethlehem, to the place of this earth, so that he became a man so that he could save you. That's how much he loves you. And you look beyond Bethlehem and you look to Jerusalem. And, and even outside of the walls of Jerusalem, you look to the hill called Calvary, the hill called Golgotha, the place of the skull. And you look to the cross where Jesus hung and bled and died in your place for your sins so that you could be forgiven, so that you could be declared righteous, all because he loves you. And you look beyond Calvary to a day which is yet to come when Jesus will return again and our redemption will be complete. And sin and death will be things of the past, and all things will be made new. Behold the love of God for you. And know this, that God loves you, and his love is not sentimentalism. It's not hallmark platitudes, but the love of God has the power to satisfy your soul and give you a solid, stable identity and transform your entire life from the inside out. And I pray that as we focus on the love of God this Christmas season, that it would compel you.
That it would compel you to become a disciple of Christ. That it would compel you to become a servant of God. And that it would compel you to become a worshiper of God all the more. Amen? Let's stand and pray. Lord, as we look to Bethlehem, as we look to the manger in which you were laid, Lord, in which you, the Son of God, became the Son of Man, Lord, in which you left the glory of heaven to come and be amongst us and live as one of us, Lord, that you could speak to us, that you could die for us, that you could save us. Lord, we are thankful. Lord, we, we love you because you first loved us. And Lord, I pray that even today as we meditate on your love for us, Lord, let that just be a well within us that springs up. Lord, to love overflowing our lives, your love within us, overflowing our lives, touching people around us for your glory, for your kingdom, for their salvation. We pray, Lord, that you would bless this Christmas season and that it would be all about you. In Jesus' name, amen.